Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed, he's just a carpenter, son of Mary, and brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, Judas and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe him. Then Jesus said to them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Well, about a month ago, I, uh, I went to the doctor for the first time in, in a while. And, and so, like, I had not had, like, a, a checkup, a physical in, my, if my math is correct, 18 years. So it'd been a while. And so I'm getting a little older now. I have two kids. And I was like, I should probably make sure I'm healthy. And, and so I go to the doctor, and I'm sitting in the waiting room, and, and I'm just getting ready to go into to the doctor. And as soon as I walk in, we start having this conversation. And the doctor's like, hey, what are you, what are you here for? And I tell him the same thing. I'm like, it's been a while, and I just want to get checked out, make sure everything's good. And he, he looks at me, and he's like, well, obviously, you need to lose weight. Obviously, you need to exercise more. And I, like in that instant... I like, I got really defensive. I got really upset. I was like, dude, do you know? Do you know how much I exercise? I was like, buddy, I run 150 to 175K a month. Do you know how much I exercise? I lift weights three times a week. I've even added like a yoga exercise into my, my work ethic. It's like, do you know? Clearly not. We've known each other for three minutes. But I was just super angry. I was super upset with this guy. I was frustrated. It's like, buddy, I don't know how I can have more time to exercise. I don't know where it's going to do. I don't know how that's going to happen. And the fact, I do all this exercise, and, and I can't seem to get past this weight. So maybe there's a problem that you should check out for me. And like, I didn't say all that out loud, but this is what I'm thinking. Like, I was so frustrated. I was so mad with this guy. And so I leave the doctor, and, and then I start having these, like, these moments where I start thinking through, okay, is anything that he said true? Can I exercise more? and have a job and a family? Probably not. But is there anything else that I could do in my life? And, and so I talked to a buddy about this, and he was like, hey, here's what you should do. You could, should keep like a, a notebook and just jot down every day like what you eat, just so you can kind of know, are there any areas of your life that, that you, could, you could do better at? I'm like, okay, that seems fine. And so then I started realizing a few things. So each night, Tiffany and I like to have a cup of tea. Nothing wrong with that. It's decaf so that I can sleep, and so I like having a cup of tea. The problem is... If you drink a cup of tea, you know what you need with it, right? You need some biscuits, right? Or you need something sweet. And Tiffany's a really good baker, and so she'll make like cookies or brownies, and they're only really good when they're fresh. And so you gotta eat those when they're fresh. And then like, and so I started seeing this stuff. I was like, okay, well, sure, at night I have probably a little too much chocolate and too much sweets. Okay, that, that's an area in my life. And then when I started keeping this notebook, I started realizing, oh, you snack a lot, Luke. Or like I start realizing all these times that I'm snacking and stuff that I'm not snacking that should be, that's good for me. And, and so I started realizing that and I started realizing when we're done for the night, we put the girls down and we're like hanging out in, in, the, in the living room. It's like, I should make some popcorn. I'm not really hungry, but like popcorn is the, the nightly routine. And so I started realizing some of these things in my life and I was like, okay, maybe, maybe this guy's got a point. But it was that moment that this realization for me that I was like, maybe I don't actually Maybe I'm actually not living the way that I think I am. Maybe there's some blind spots in my life that I've kind of just 
kind of just missed. I've kind of overlooked. I've kind of said, well, I'm exercising enough, so that should be enough. I can get away with all this other stuff. There there were some inconsistencies in my life. And what I want us to think about that for just a minute, not necessarily your exercise habits or what you eat, but, but spiritually. Are there any inconsistencies in your life? Are there any areas of your life where, where you say you believe something, you think you believe something, but if you were to write down on paper what you do during the week or during the day, if you were to take a note of how you lived, when you look at your notebook, you'd be like, something doesn't match up. There's some inconsistencies there. You ever say you believe something, but then act a completely different way? In our text this week, man, there is a single statement that has just completely gripped me. It's one that for the last two weeks, as I've been thinking about this sermon, that I have not been able to get out of my mind. It is one that's been like a spotlight to me. And even when I close my eyes, there's still like this bright light that is shining. This is so convicting. It's so powerful. And it's in verse three or verse six. It's a simple little statement. It says, Jesus says, it says this of Jesus, sorry. He was amazed at their unbelief. He was amazed at their unbelief. Let that sink in for one more second. He was amazed by their unbelief. Just from a show of hands, anybody want Jesus to be amazed by their unbelief? No one? Like none of, us wanna, none of us want Jesus to be amazed at our unbelief. None of us want Jesus to look at us and be like, wow, your lack of faith, it amazes me. None of us want that. We, want, we don't want to be these people. But Jesus here, his people in his hometown, this moment, Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. He can't, he's, he's shocked by their unbelief. So the question that we're going to wrestle with today, the question I want us to be thinking about maybe throughout the rest of the week is, in what ways does your faith Amaze Jesus. In what ways does your faith amaze Jesus? When you look around, when you see the life that you're living, in what ways is Jesus going to be amazed by your faith? Is he amazed by, by your great faith or by your unbelief, by your lack of faith? So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take some time to have a, a DTR. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with what a DTR is, but if you've ever been in a relationship for any like, significant period of time, You've had one of these moments. It's, it's the define the relationship talk. Like, and it, maybe, maybe you're just like, oh. You, like, you can think like that, that moment like, where you have to define the relationship. Perhaps you've been like, in a relationship for a while and things are going well, and then somebody brings up like, hey, so, so where, where are we going? Or, or what is this getting at? Or, or where are we heading in this relationship? And, and so I make, and it, it comes a point where in every relationship, like, it's, it's necessary. It may be awkward, it may be uncomfortable, but there comes a point where we have to know, okay, is this, is this anything more than just texting each other and going out for dinner? Are we heading in a direction? Is this relationship heading anywhere? Or is it just more just like hanging out and fun? And, and like there, there's these moments where we have to define the relationship. And I remember uh, one of these conversations that Tiffany and I had. And so we were younger, and it was this first moment where we actually talked about, like, the time frame in which we were going to get married. Like, we had already talked about, we had already discussed, like, we were going to get married. But in this particular Define the Relationship conversation, we were going to discuss the time frame of this. 
I didn't know that's what we were talking about when we started this conversation, but that's what we were heading. So, so I was telling this with Tiffany, and she actually remembered this conversation too. We were like on the way from the beach back to school, and she just like randomly, casually asked me the question, so hey, what do you think you're going to be doing next summer? <laughs> it's August. I'm like, I don't know. It's basically still summer. Um, that wasn't the right answer. It wasn't the right answer to be like, I don't know what I'm going to be doing next summer because she knew exactly what she wanted to be doing next summer. And it was not not knowing what we were doing. And so like, it was this conversation that we were having. It's like, hey, this, I want to be married next summer. Are we going to be married next summer? And I'm like, it's still summer. I don't even know what, I don't know what I'm doing next week, let alone next summer. And so we, had to, we opened up this conversation. We defined the relationship. We started setting, hey, this is the time frame that we're kind of looking at that we can kind of plan through. And it was awkward. It was uncomfortable, but it was necessary, right? Like, we have to have these types of conversations, and this is what Jesus does for us. Like, Jesus forces us to have the conversation to define our relationship with him. Are we really living in a way that amazes Jesus by our faith? Or are there some inconsistencies in our lives, some things that don't quite match up with what we think they are supposed to look like? And so let's set the stage today for our text that we're talking about. Jesus has been away from that, from Nazareth, for, for about a year. And so Jesus, when he comes back, like this would have been very unusual because in that day, people didn't often leave their, their homes. And so this, this, this small town boy, he's, he's, he comes back home and the people are proud. They're excited that there's this Jesus guy, but they're also a little bit jealous. I mean, their local boy, he's, he's made a name for himself. He's been a rabbi. He's, he's gathered some, some followers who follow his disciples, who follow him around as a rabbi. He, he's done some incredible things. Like if we lay all the gospels side by side, we see Jesus has healed people. Jesus has cleansed the temple. Jesus has done some, some amazing, incredible things. He said he's told the wind and the waves to stop and they stop dead in their tracks. Jesus has had this conversation with Nicodemus, who was a, a religious leader, a very important person. Like Jesus has, has done a lot. At this point, his resume is pretty significant. It's, it's a great resume for a backwoods boy living in the hills of Galilee. And so Jesus come home. He comes home and the people are, I'm sure they're excited to see him. Maybe they're even telling, telling tales about Jesus who, oh, he went off to the big city and this is what he's done. But the reality is they're also, they're also a little jealous. They want to make sure Jesus doesn't get too big for his britches, that he doesn't start thinking too highly of himself. And this is where we find ourselves. Verse one through three. This is how the story goes. Jesus left that part of the country and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. The next Sabbath, he began teaching in the synagogue, and many were amazed. Many who heard him were amazed. They asked, where did he get all this wisdom and power to perform such miracles? Then they scoffed. He's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live right here among us. They were deeply offended and refused to believe in him. Like, I want to, as we read that, did you just notice the shift that happens in these people? First, they, they heard him and they were amazed. Then they scoffed. Then they were deeply offended. Then they refused to believe in him. Like, as I read that timeline, as I read that, that progression that happens, like, man, I've, we've seen this play out. I've seen this play out with people, like, of faith. Like, first, we'll, we'll hear about, like, the freedom that Jesus offers. And we are amazed by that. We're amazed that Jesus can save us from our sins. We're amazed at what Jesus can do. And so we're, we're super amazed by that. But then 
we start hearing about Jesus' definition of ethics, whether it's family ethics or sexual ethic or work ethics, and we start to scoff at that. I'm like, well, okay. Like, we're, so we move from amazed at what Jesus can do and what Jesus says, and then we just start like scoffing a little bit at it. But then we continue reading, we continue learning more about Jesus, and we hear what he says about forgiving our enemies. And we think to ourselves, well, Jesus, do you know what they did to me? Do you know what they said to me? You want me to forgive them? And we move to not only scoffing what Jesus says, we are deeply offended. Or then we were just like, well, Jesus, it really doesn't seem like it's a good time for us. Jesus, it really doesn't seem like that you have the same goal in life as I do. I don't really feel like you actually want me just to be happy or you don't seem to be on the same plan as, as what I want. And so we just completely reject him. And this is, this is what these people are doing. They move through this progression and, and they change and they go here. And like when you read this, like I, the question that strikes me is like, what's their deal with Jesus? Like, what's the problem? Like, what is it about Jesus that makes these people in his hometown so upset? So I think first thing we've got to do is we've got to look at the cultural situation. Like, this is written in the first century. And so if you would, go ahead and just put yourself in the sandals of a first century Nazarene. Okay? So you're, you're, Jesus is hometown. You're, Jesus is back. And, and culturally speaking, like, this is, this is a little different. Because in our world... Like, we love hearing stories about someone who made themselves something out of nothing. Like, we love rags-to-riches kind of stories. We love those moments. We love, this is like a dream that a lot of us have even, is like we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We can, we can will our way into being something important. Maybe we didn't start out as much, but we really started to make ourselves important. We really started to, to work our way up into something. And, and we love those kind of stories. Except in Jesus' day, that wasn't the type of thing that happened. In Jesus' day, there was a social boundaries that people had to, to fit in. So what they would say is, at birth, God ordained who you were going to be and what you were going to do. If you were born of noble birth, you were going to be the people who ruled. If you were not born of no, noble birth, you were going to be a carpenter, or you were going to be a laborer, or you were going to do these other things. And there was these social boundaries that you fit. And if you wanted to try to go from rags to riches, like, you didn't do that. That wasn't what people did. It wasn't happening in the first century. So they would have thought of Jesus as someone who was rejecting the order that God had set up. And so culturally, this would have been hard for them to understand because there's this boy who had been a carpenter who, who God had said, this is, this is your family that you're born, you're born into, so this is where you have to stay. And then Jesus goes and moves. So, so culturally, like, Jesus has disrespected the boundaries, the cultural boundaries. Like this carpenter now, he's supposed to be the Christ. This carpenter is supposed to be a king. This carpenter is supposed to be the Messiah, the promised Messiah, Israel's the, the, the fulfillment of Israel's story, this carpenter is supposed to be that culturally, that just wouldn't make sense. That would have been a lot to swallow. The reality is like there's, there's more than just a cultural issue that's at play here. There's more than just culture that's happening. It's not just culture that makes these people uncomfortable. It's the power and the authority that Jesus has. That's what gets these people. That's what they're really struggling with. Look again in verse two, here's what he says. They ask this question, where did he get all this wisdom and the power to perform such miracles? I mean, rather than being proud of Jesus, 
They're just left questioning. It's like, where did he get this power from? Rather than thinking, Jesus, we're so proud of you. Way to make something of yourself. They're, they're upset. They're, they're, they're terrified. They're afraid of the power and the authority that he has. Notice they even openly acknowledge his power to do miracles. They acknowledge his authority. They just don't like it. Because this is the type of power that Jesus has, and they are uncomfortable with it. And they, they, they just don't want to forget who Jesus was. And so they, they think back to his, who Jesus was. And, and this week, Tiffany and I, have, well, not just this week, but this week, Tiffany and I were reading in, in the sixth Harry Potter book, The Half-Blood Prince. And in this book, there's this conversation between, between Dumbledore and Voldemort. Yes, I said Voldemort. He who should not be named. All right. But like his name before he turns Voldemort is Tom Riddle. And they're having this conversation. Dumbledore's having this conversation. And, and he comes into the room, or he comes in, and Dumbledore says, So, Tom, what do I owe the pleasure? And Voldemort responds back, Well, they don't call me, they don't call me Tom anymore. They call me, and, and Dumbledore's like, Yeah, I, I know what they call you. But to me, you're always going to be Tom Riddle. And here's, here's the quote It's one of the irritating things about old teachers, I'm afraid. They never quite forget their charges, youthful beginnings. He's like, yeah, like, but I remember you from when you were a kid. And this is what you're always going to be. And this is what is happening with these people in Jesus' hometown. Like, look again at verse 3. They say, he's just a carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and his sisters live here among us. They're like, this is who he is. This is the, this is the child that we know. They have a hard time forgetting that. So whenever uh, Tiffany and I go back to our home church, I, I, I usually preach and teach while, while we're there. It's our church called Philippi Church of Christ. And, and so whenever we go back to Philippi, like I'll, I'll teach a sermon, I'll preach, we'll talk about what God is doing in Ireland, we'll, we'll do these sort of things. And, and at the end of a sermon, like, as people are leaving, I'll usually like be chatting with some different people. And inevitably, inevitably, I'll see this like old lady start making her way up to me. And I know exactly where the conversation is heading. And so I, I'm sitting here, I'm talking with these people. They're like, hey, Luke, good sermon, asking questions about it. We're dialoguing about life and about faith. And then this old lady comes up and be, she'll put her arm around me and she'll be like, I used to change his nappies in the nursery. <laughs> why? Like, why would you say that? Like, and it's weird and it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. I was like, I never really know how to respond. I'm like, do I say thank you that I don't have permanent nappy rash? Like, what do I do? But like, it's one of these moments where it's like, everything like tends to change. They can't forget who I was because like, and, and this is kind of what Jesus is getting at. Like Jesus is having this moment there. They, they can't see who Jesus is because they remember Jesus as the guy who was, who was racing camels with his brothers. Or they remember Jesus as the man who, who built their table. They remember Jesus as the one that their daughter had a crush on. They remember Jesus as the boy who told stories that no one understood. They remember Jesus as the one who was holding Mary's hand in the market. And Jesus asked for sugary cereal. And Mary says, no, it's not good for you. And Jesus says, I can ask my father to make this nourishing to our bodies and he'll listen to me. All right, that probably didn't happen. But like, this is what they remember Jesus about. They remember Jesus as a small kid, as a small boy, or this person from Nazareth. And like, you clearly can't be, you can't be God. So essence, what they're saying is you can't be who you say you are. You can't be who your actions imply you to be because of who you are. Because you're Mary's son. You're a carpenter. You're a brother, Czar, or James, and Judas. Or, and like, you, you, 
you, this can't, you can't be this. And so, so they reject Jesus. Once again, this picks up on a the theme that we see running all the way through the book of Mark, is that Jesus is rejected by those who should accept him. Jesus is rejected by those who we think are inside as though who sh- those who should accept him reject them. There's also a, a, a foretaste that shows us what it's going to be like when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem. The people who should accept him are the ones that reject him. And so in Mark's gospel, to be Jesus or to be with Jesus is to face rejection. So let's keep on reading verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus told them, A prophet is honored everywhere except in his own hometown and among his relatives and his own family. And because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. There are really two issues that we see here. Uh, two, two things that are going on. First, uh, let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room. Jesus could not perform any miracles among them. Or, or, or at least he could not perform many miracles among them. Like it seems that what Mark is saying is like because of their lack of faith, Jesus is impeded from doing miracles. So is this what Mark is, this what Mark is teaching us? Like we, we've seen through the book of Mark that like faith and miracles, they are, they are connected that faith and miracles, they, they, they go together. And so Mark is, is Mark telling us that if we, don't, if we don't have faith, like Jesus is not able to do miracles? Like, is Mark telling us that if we don't have faith, the power that Jesus has to do miracles is, is decimated, is, is taken away? Is that what Mark is saying? No, that's not what Mark is teaching us at all. Here's what I find fascinating. The fact that Jesus lays hands on people and only heals a few people is described as a disappointment. If that's described as a a negative thing, that is just showing us the power that Jesus has. He only heals a few people. That's a disappointment. So Mark isn't telling us, like, he's not just saying, well, if you don't have faith, Jesus' power to to do miracles disappears. No, he's, he's giving us a theology to understand miracles. He's helping us see what miracles actually are because the fact is Jesus didn't do, didn't do miracles just for the sake of miracles. They are an inbreaking of the kingdom. Jesus doesn't just do miracles and be like, hey guys, watch this. This person who was, who was sick, they're going to be healed. Jesus, well, that was neat. Like Jesus isn't doing that. Like Jesus doesn't call all his disciples together and be like, all right, guys, place your bets. What's the reaction going to be? All right, so he heals this person. Oh, they, they, they bow down and worship. John, you get to pick where we have supper. Like, that's, that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus isn't doing miracles because it's a cool thing to do. No, he's doing it because it's an inbreaking of the kingdom. Jesus' miracles are, are a way that the, the, the kingdom of light fights against the kingdom of darkness. Think about when Jesus cast out demons. It's showing that this miracle that Jesus does, that he has the authority over, over Satan. He has authority over the kingdom of darkness that he is, going, he is taking rule and reign over them. Think about when Jesus heals leprosy. Like these are people who, who have been ostracized. They've been cut out from, from the faith, from their family, from friends. And Jesus heals them and he restores them back to right relationship with people and with God. We see this beautiful thing when Jesus heals people who are dead. We are showing that this is what the kingdom of heaven is going to be like. It is not one of death. It is one of life. And so when Jesus does these miracles, it is a, it is a way of breaking into the kingdom, of showing us what the kingdom of God is like. And so in this story, Jesus, it's not that he can't do miracles. He just doesn't do a lot of miracles. 
because they don't believe the king. And so he's not going to show that he doesn't show them the kingdom. And so Jesus, he doesn't do a lot of miracles. And the other thing we see, though, in this room or this, this text is in verse four, that, that Jesus says a prophet is without honor in his own town. And here's the thing is, is this is the moment. This is one of the moments where, where we see the only place in Mark's gospel that Jesus refers to himself is referred to as a prophet. It's fascinating because in Mark's gospel, Jesus is always more than just a prophet. He's, he's the son of man. He's the son of God. He is the Messiah. He is more than just a prophet. But, but this kind of fits in with the theme that we see of prophets in the Old Testament is they are rejected. They, they, they're, they're killed. They do crazy things. People don't accept their message. And this is what we begin to see with Jesus, especially we see with the two most famous prophets in Israel's history is Elijah and Elisha. And we begin, if we look at this story alongside the other, I know we're not supposed to do this, but it's easy to do. In Luke, 5, in Luke 4, Luke records this same story in a little more detail. And Luke gives us a, a moment where Jesus compares himself to Elijah and Elisha. And we find fascinating that Elisha, his most powerful miracle, one of his most powerful miracle is raising a widow's son from the dead in Zarephath. Here's the thing there. That's not Israel. That's in Sidon, which is one of, one of Israel's greatest enemies. And so he, he does it for, for a foreigner. And then Elijah's protege, Elisha, he is the only person other than Jesus in the scriptures to heal someone of leprosy. But the person that he heals from leprosy is named Naaman. And, and he is from Aram. Once again, he's a commander of an army that is outside of Israel. And so these two powerful prophets are, are they don't do these powerful miracles with, their, with the people of Israel, but they do it outside of that. And Jesus is saying, like, that's, that's what's happening here. Jesus is saying, like, this is what it looks like. Jesus is saying that God has always been interested in outsiders, and outsiders have always been interested in God. And I think that's really good news for us. Because for the most part, like, this might have been where we, where we were. Maybe you didn't grow up in a family of faith. Maybe you didn't grow up going to church every weekend. Maybe you didn't grow up knowing about the scriptures. And so you find yourself, you think that you're an outsider. And God says, yeah, I'm very interested in those people. I'm very interested in you. And a prophet is without honor in his hometown. Like this passage is a little teaser, just a little teaser for next week. As we put this passage with the next passage, this is a precursor to the Great Commission where Jesus is going to send out his disciples to, to the ends of the earth. This is, this is what we see. Is this what Jesus is showing for us? And so Jesus, so the people in Jesus' hometown, they refuse to give him honor. They refuse to believe in him. And I think this passage serves as a, as a warning for us. I think this passage is, is one of those like check engine lights for us or low battery lights that begin to flash. I think it's warning us and it's reminding us not to find comfort in proximity because just because we are close to Jesus doesn't mean that we are with Jesus. Just because we're close to him, just because we're around him, just because we show up on the weekends, doesn't actually mean that we know him. I mean, here's these people, they, they, they know Jesus. They just fail to see him for who he truly is. They, true to, they fail to see him. They don't want to see him for who he is. Familiar, familiarity with Jesus doesn't guarantee knowing him. So let's look again at verse 6. And he was amazed at their unbelief. 
he was amazed at their unbelief. Another way of saying that, he was dumbfounded by their lack of faith. So this isn't a moment where Jesus is like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. No, instead, Jesus is shocked. He's disappointed. He's amazed at how these people who can be close to him, these people that he remembers, these people who he, come, he comes from their area, like how these people cannot believe in him. The crowd acknowledges Jesus' power. They acknowledge his, his authority. They acknowledge his ability to do wisdom yet, or do, do miracles, yet they, they, they don't believe. And sometimes I've, I've heard people say, and I've even thought myself, if I would have just lived in Jesus' day, it would have been really easy to believe. Or maybe you've even thought this, like, oh, if I could just see some miracles, things would be easy to believe. Like, if Jesus would just show me a sign, then I, then I would believe it would be fine. But here's what we find in the text, that, belief, or that miracles don't always, mean, don't always mean belief. Like, these people, they see Jesus' miracles, they've seen him do these things, and yet they don't, and that they don't believe. They've seen his authority, they've seen his power, they've seen it all. And they don't believe him. And I just wonder, for these people, like, what is it going to take? What more do you need? What more does Jesus need to show you in order for you to believe in him? Sometimes I think back to, to our own lives, my, my moments in my life where I lack belief or lack faith. And it's like asking myself the same question and maybe asking you the same question. What, is it going, what more do you need? What more do you need before you are going to believe? What more, what more evidence do you need before you truly trust him? What more does he have to show you before you say, okay, Jesus, you're in charge of my life now. What more do you need? Like we see this with Jesus, like things for him, they change, they change so quickly. Like we just, the passages Stephen taught on last week, there's two incredible stories of people coming to Jesus in great faith. One person is like, if I can just touch the hem of his, his robe. One person comes to Jesus and falls at his feet. They have these great faith that Jesus is going to do something. The lady with the issue of blood is healed by touching his robe because she believes. Jesus heals Jairus' daughter. These amazing moments of faith. And now Mark is bringing us back to reality of what it looks like. What ends up beginning to happen is, is people, they're always, there's this, this, this give, or, give or take. Some people believe, some people don't believe. There's, the people are divided between accepting the kingdom or rejecting the kingdom. And here's what Mark does so brilliantly in all of his gospel, is he shows us that Jesus demands a response. Every single moment in Jesus in this gospel, like people are, have to choose one way or the other. What's it going to be? What's it, what are you going to say about Jesus? And here's the thing. You probably heard me say this before. Indecision is a decision. Inaction is an action. No response is a response. So what's it going to be? There's this, a quote from, from C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. And I just think this is really, really powerful. This is kind of the point that, that Mark makes through his gospel that we've got to choose what we say about Jesus. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
he would either be a lunatic on the level with which a man who says he is a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was or is the son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left this open to us. He did not intend to. So what's it going to be? What are we going to say? Is Jesus going to be amazed by our belief in him? Like, Jesus, I'm in. Or is he going to be amazed by our lack of belief? Hebrews 11.6, I think is a really helpful passage for us. Here's what the writer of Hebrews says. It says, It is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and reward those who sincerely seek him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. But I think the opposite is also true. Is, is with faith, we can please God. And as we read through the scriptures, as we read through the Bible, we begin to see faith really kind of manifest itself in, in three primary ways. First is, is faith as belief. And then it moves as faith as action. And finally, faith is surrender. And if you want a little helpful illustration of that, this week, read, um, read the story of Abraham, Genesis 12 through 25. We see these play out with the life of Abraham. And we see these things reinforced all throughout the New Testament. It's faith is belief, like John 3.16. Or we see faith is, faith is action. James, who is mentioned in our passage, Jesus' brother, writes about this in James chapter 2. Finally, faith is surrender. We see Abraham surrendering and willing to do that. And so this is what faith looks like. So once again, let me ask you, what's it going to be? In what ways is Jesus going to be amazed by your faith? Is he going to be amazed by your unbelief, your lack of faith? Or is he going to be amazed at someone who, who lives out the words of the Scriptures? Is he going to be amazed that you are a person who does the work of God, who does what God calls you to do? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. God, we thank you for who you are.